Welcome, welcome, welcome into a seminarian and friends, a podcast where my friends ask me their questions about Jesus, scripture, the church, or theology. My name is Kevin Gray, the seminarian who's probably in a class that addresses their quandaries. I have a lot of theological conversations with my roommate, who was on the podcast a couple of months ago. In one of these discussions, he asked me how the Old Testament saints were saved since Christ had not come yet. So today I'm going to explore that, and I hope that my thoughts will help you. First, I want to look at how we are saved today. Now, I really appreciate and respect the reformers like Martin Luther and John Calvin. And one of the things that came out of the Reformation 500 years ago were the five solas. So I'm going to use that as the first model to understand how we get saved today. So following their thoughts, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed by scripture alone, God's word alone, for the glory of God alone. Now, because we believe that scripture, God's word, the Bible, uh, is sufficient, I want to propose a few sections that, that scripture has put forth summarizing the process of salvation. The Bible is not a systematic theology in salvation. You can find those. Uh, I have a lot of really good ones. Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, super helpful. John Calvin talks a lot about justification. Reformed Dogmatics by Herman Bovink is this four-volume set that I loved as I read through it this past year so many other resources. Scripture is not that way, but it does have some passages that talk about what God has done in saving his people. Those include, but are not limited to, 1 Corinthians 15, Acts 2, 24 through 40, Luke 24, 44 through 47, and John 3. Just to name a few for you to go back for your own personal study and see the glory of God's work in history. This podcast, however, we are going to read a couple of chapters in Romans. Now, Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote this letter to a church in Rome in the first century AD. He had never been there. He hadn't established it. He didn't know these people, which makes this letter stand out a little bit from his other letters. But he was writing to them, trying to help them understand the nature of Christ and his work and what it means for them. So we're going to, like I said, we're going to look at two chapters today, starting in Romans 3. So if you have your Bible with you, turn with me to Romans 3, and I'm going to read. It starts like this. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? 
I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their path are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one, who will justify the uncircumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. That was Romans 3. There is a lot to unpack there that we can maybe do at another time, but I want to hone in on summarizing what Paul is arguing in this letter. What he's saying is that because of our unrighteousness, we are God's enemies by nature. We have sinned and what sin is is a rejection of God's authority it's a breaking of his law the, the bible uses several different terms like transgression or iniquity uh, unrighteousness lawlessness basically god has given commands we've disobeyed these commands because we wanted to be god ourselves and in doing so we have offended god and we have committed cosmic treason we are guilty of crime against the most high. Because God is just, there is a penalty. And that penalty is death. God has declared that he will justly judge for this unrighteousness that every one of us, including myself and including you, has committed 
And so we are all due death justly as punishment. And that, that death is partly our physical death, but ultimately it will be an eternity of punishment, which is not an inhumane amount of punishment for the sin, because we have to remember that when we commit sin, when we reject God's love, when we disobey, we have to remember the caliber of the person against whom we are sinning. So in the same way that if I were to punch the president in the face, I would have a higher penalty to pay than if I punched my friend because the caliber of the offended party is generally higher than my friend in American society. Well, how much more for the infinite, eternal, all holy, all worthy, all good God. However, Jesus, who is himself God, was born in human likeness and he died to pay this penalty of death so that we don't have to. And then he rose again in defeat of death, declaring that death and sin have no claim over him. And in his gracious love and his loving grace, he offers this life and forgiveness of sins and his own righteousness to all who would turn to him in repentance and believe who he is and what he's done. So... To answer the question, how are we saved today? We are saved from our sins and the wrath that God justly has against us for our sins by turning and trusting in Jesus, both in who he is and in what he has done on our behalf. With that being the case that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ, how did the Old Testament saints get saved. And that is the crux of what I want to talk about today. And so I am going to continue in Romans in chapter 4. So Paul indicted all of humanity for their sin against hum uh, against God, their this evil that we have living in ourselves. And then he mentioned that there's justification possible and he expands on this argument of justification. So he says this, chapter 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham were justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sins. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith 
while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null, and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Again, there is a ton to unpack there. If you're unfamiliar with circumcision or Abraham, I encourage you to go figure that stuff out on your own time, or you can ask me about it and we can explore it more on this podcast. What I want to highlight are the words grace, which Paul said, and faith, which Paul said. And then I want to hone in on this verse. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So the reason righteousness matters is because in a legal sense, God is judge, right? And when we sinned, we committed crime against him, and he has the authority to execute judgment based on the legal standing of unrighteousness that we bear, okay? If he ignores that we are unrighteous and sweeps our sins under the cosmic rug, then the righteous judge is no longer just. So something has to happen within us for us to be made right with God. We need to lose this standing of being unrighteous through our sin against God. And what Paul is saying here is that faith is like the mechanism through which God changes our status from unrighteous to righteous so that we no longer are due death as penalty for our sin because we stand righteous as if we had never sinned before. This is the definition of justification, to be declared 
right, to be declared just, to be declared righteous. God, through our faith, declares that we are right. And it's because of Jesus that that happens. And I'll get to that in a second. But again, I want to look at this verse. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. There is a Christian rapper group called Beautiful Eulogy. They have this one song where a guest preacher comes in and talks about authentic faith. And in it, he has this great line. He says, faith is not simply believing in God, but believing God. And, and there's scriptural basis for this. James talks about even the demons believe that God exists and shudder. So it's, it's saving faith is not where you mentally agree that God exists and it doesn't change you and, and you don't do anything about it. Instead, believing God is what matters. And the nature of believing God is that you take him at his word so that you, you trust him and then you live out as best as you can what he says. For example, believing God is not simply agreeing that God exists, but trusting that he is good and right. Or... Believing in God is just saying, yeah, there's a higher power and he probably created the world. But believing God is listening to what he has spoken and the promises that he has made and putting all our faith and hope and trust in that. So we actively trust and rest in and live our lives as if it's true that what God has promised will come to pass. Now, scripture has many, many promises, and I've listed some of them on there. One of them is that if you turn to Christ, Jesus Christ, and ask him to forgive your sins, he will do it. That is a promise. And if you believe that, if you trust that, then you are saved. So it's more than just agreeing that God exists. It's living your life in a way that you are relying on God to do what you cannot do and you are trusting that who he is who he says he is is who he is and what he's done is what he's done and that his promises to you are true and putting all your hope in that so through that faith God justified and said you are righteous it is as if you have never sinned and instead you are perfectly just you are holy, you are right with me, and it's through believing God, trusting his promises, that Abraham was counted righteous. And it's the same for us today. So let me give you some promises that God has made. There are a bunch of them, uh, but let me just give you a few. In Genesis 3.15, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while now, you have heard me mention Genesis 3.15 quite a bit. In it, God promises that a serpent slayer would come, that he would raise up a serpent slayer to crush the head of the serpent while his heel was bruised. So to believe God and trust in that promise, many Old Testament saints believed that, like God said, he would raise up this serpent slayer 
who would end the curse. Another promise was that God would raise a prophet like Moses. This is found in Deuteronomy 18. That God would raise up someone to be very similar to Moses in that he would cut a covenant with his people and he would do miracles and signs and be a mediator between the people and God. And so people, in light of the Genesis 3.15 promise and in light of this promise, continued to trust that God would do that and keep searching for who this person would be and follow him. Another promise that God made is that he would forgive sins through repentance when people turn to him and trust him to do what they could not do, such as cleansing them of all unrighteousness, all sins, all wickedness through a sacrificial substitute, which he talked about in the Levitical law, in the Torah, in the first five books of the Bible, where an animal would die in exchange for the forgiveness of a person's sin. But that wasn't its own end. It was always pointing to this serpent slayer, this prophet like Moses, who would be, who would be the ultimate lamb of God, who would take on all of these sins on himself and die for the people and then rise again, offering this forgiveness. So these people trusted that God's law was good. And when they failed to uphold it, they trusted that God was willing to forgive through the means that he had given them in the Old Testament being the sacrificial, the sacrificial system until Christ came as the final ultimate sacrifice. What did not save the Old Testament saints, and I want to make this very clear, was obedience to the law. Paul, throughout Romans and Galatians and, and other letters, and then the author of the letter to the Hebrews, emphatically declared that obedience to the law would not justify someone who has already committed sin. The law did a lot of really good things, and, and Paul was quick to emphasize that the law was holy and good, but its purpose and power were never to justify and save. What the law did was expose sins and increase sins, because Paul talks about how when there there's a law, then sin takes advantage of that and causes you to sin more and more and more, and it increases transgression. What the law could not do was reverse the curse that God laid upon the world after Adam sinned, and it could not forgive sins. Therefore, obedience to the law, no, no matter how well someone obeyed the law, could never justify and atone for past mistakes. On top of that, scripture makes it clear that no mere human can even fulfill the law and its demands or any law, no matter how hard they try. Like, if I want to give myself a law that I'm never going to speed or I'm never going to run a light, I think you and I both know that I can't keep that up, let alone a holy and perfect law. I can never do enough to perfectly obey. And then when Jesus was commenting on the law, he said it's not even enough to do the actions of 
the law, but you have to do them from a right heart posture. So you have to do them out of love for God and humility and selflessness and love and mercy and kindness, which is one of the areas that he condemned the Pharisees for because they were very quick to point out how good they were at following the law, even though Jesus knew that their hearts were not right. So obedience to the law, no matter how good or well someone does it, can never justify a person. It can never make one right according to the law, and it cannot undo what has been done in the past. Let me give you an example. If I go out right now and I murder someone, no matter how perfectly I obey the rest of the American law, no matter how much I conform to that law, the law itself, nor my obedience to it, can undo this murder. That person remains dead no matter how well I drive, no matter how many red lights I stop at, no matter how often I drive the speed limit and vote and do all of these things. It cannot reverse the fact that that person is dead. I will always be guilty of that and that person will always be dead because of my decision. So this guilt always remains. And the same thing is true of God's law. Because Adam sinned and we he was representing us, so when he sinned, it was as if all of us had sinned at the same time. So we bear guilt and then our nature is corrupt so that all that we do constantly and want to do is evil continually. But again, I, I've said this before, instead, Jesus came apart from the guilt and the corruption of Adam's sin. So he was like a new Adam, a new representative for the human race. He came bearing the original innocence that Adam had, but lost and gave away when he sinned against God in the garden. And amazingly, and thankfully, Jesus maintained this innocence and fulfilled the law on our behalf. So he perfectly conformed to the law. Everything in his entire life was according to the fullness of the law and its demands. And he fulfilled it as if we had done it. And then he died on our behalf and rose again. The theological term is double imputation. So we placed our sins on him as if he had been the one who sinned. And then he placed his righteousness on us as if we were the ones who fulfilled the law and became righteous according to it. When, when he was hanging on the cross, scripture says that he became sin. In this exchange, after Jesus rose from the dead, declaring that sin and death have no power over him, we stand righteous because of Jesus. His blood has cleansed us of all sin, and we stand righteous apart from the law. This is grace because we didn't earn it. We couldn't do it. But God in Jesus gave it to us freely as a gift. Not because we earned it, not because we deserve it, not according to our own merits, but because God is gracious. 
we receive this through faith in the person and work of Jesus. And this was true for the Old Testament saints like Job, who believed his Redeemer would give him life again. So let me give you a final summation. The Old Testament saints were saved not by conformity to the law. They were saved by grace, through faith, in Christ, as revealed in Scripture, to the glory of God. Christ was still a shadow. He was still a type. They didn't see the fullness of God's redemptive plan yet, but they trusted his promises. They trusted his provision. They trusted his power. They trusted his commandments. And when in the fullness of time, when Christ did come, then the mysteries of long ago were revealed. And those who had been hoping in him and trusting in him for millennia, though they had died, were finally vindicated on the cross the same way that you and I are. And that's how the Old Testament saints were saved. Friends, thank you for your questions. I hope this has been helpful. I hope that you believe this good news of Jesus, who he is and what he's done for us. And friends, I pray that if you, if you haven't yet, that you do believe, that you call on Jesus to save you so that through him, you might be reconciled to God and receive newness of life and forgiveness of sins and that you will no longer be under the judgment and the penalty for sin that is coming to all who refuse to repent and believe this good news. Friends, keep sending in your questions to me, and uh, we'll catch you next time. Soli Deo Gloria.